Hey, you're listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. In this week's sermon, Mission Pastor Hoffman Ryan concludes our sermon series, We Are Yours, as he preaches on the sent nature of every believer from John chapter 17. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. My name is Hoffman Ryan, and as of just a few weeks ago, I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Auburn, which is truly an honor for me. I'm humbled and I'm hopeful about what God is going to do in and through us as we move forward together as a church family. Um, for the past two weeks, if you've been here, you'll know that we've been learning from Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, you can open there. Um, it is truly one of the most breathtaking portions of John's gospel. Because in this amazing passage, we find Jesus on the night of his betrayal, on the night when all his friends would desert him, on the night Peter would deny him, on the night, he would be, uh, the night before he would be crucified, what do we find him doing? We find him praying. We find him praying to his father. We find, find him praying for his disciples who would abandon him. We find him praying for us. The love of Jesus is revealed in this prayer to us, and it's amazing. In the first week, Matt focused on verse 3 of this prayer, which says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And Matt talked about how the most important thing in life, the ultimate thing, is knowing God. And it's not just knowing facts about God, it's knowing God personally in the context of a personal relationship with Him, a relationship that's defined by love and trust. Now, I grew up in a small town in, <clears throat> in Alabama. My parents are wonderful Christians, and they took us to church every Sunday. So in that context, I grew up knowing a lot about God. But it wasn't until college here in Auburn that I realized I don't really know him because I don't love him and I don't follow him. But in God and his kindness and mercy, he introduced me to someone who became a friend who did know God, who did love God, who did follow God. And it was through this friend that I, too, came to know the living God and trust and follow him. And it changed everything. Last week, Matt focused on verse 20 of Jesus' prayer, which says, Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also might be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And Matt explained to us why being in an authentic gospel community, together with believers who are working it out to follow Jesus together, is so essential for the Christian life. Whether we live like it or not, whether we experience it or not, we are one in Jesus. If you are united by faith in Jesus to him, you are also united by that same faith to every other Christian. There is but one church. There is but one family of God. There is but one kingdom under this king. We are one. So belonging to a, an authentic gospel community is essential for us living out who we truly are as children of God. It is in this context that we learn to live out the gospel as a whole life response to Jesus. And it is impossible for us to do that apart from others. I can remember the first time I experienced this, meaning authentic gospel community. I can remember the room I was sitting in and the chair in that room in which I was sitting. What I remember most of all is the love that the Christians there had for one another and for me. It was like I'd come into contact for the first time with this power that I'd never known. It was more powerful than anything. 
I want to conclude this series in John 17 today by looking at this word from his prayer, which is in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. After I graduated from Auburn 20 years ago, I went with a group of friends to China to study Chinese at a university there. And as we studied to share Christ with Chinese students, we were sent. And just a few days after arriving in our city, I met a Chinese graduate student who was an MBA student. And in our very first meeting, and just a few minutes into that meeting, he said, do you know God? Because I'm looking for someone who can tell me about him. I was like, yes, I'd be glad to tell you about God. And we started meeting and studying the Bible, reading the Bible together and, and discussing what we were learning. And after three months, he turned to the Lord. I had similar experiences with several other students that year, and so did the other uh, friends of mine from Auburn. And in fact, in that year, we saw over 90 uh, Chinese college students turn to Christ. And some of them fell away, of course, from the faith, but many did not. And many of them are still following the Lord today, and some of them are even house church pastors and Christian leaders. And as we learn more and more about God's work in China during these years, we realized that we were participating in one of the greatest spiritual awakenings that's ever happened in the history of the world. It's truly amazing just the sheer number of Chinese people coming to Christ. People would joke in those days that if one person sneezed and the second person said, God bless you, the third person would repent and believe the gospel. Um, it was truly amazing. Uh, later on I, in my journey in China, I went to Tibet, which is in the far western reaches of the country, and the spiritual climate there was entirely different. I spent four years among Tibetans and only had four friends in that whole time that were even mildly interested in knowing more about Jesus. It was very different. So being sent to China brought with it incredible joys, the greatest of which is uh, it was through that experience that I came to meet my wife, Courtney. Uh, and then now we have three beautiful daughters. Um, but being sent to China uh, also brought about uh, great hardships and pain. In 2010, my wife and I, we moved back to the States and eventually settled here in Auburn. And um, since that time, God has blessed us with a ministry of, of training and equipping uh, cross-cultural missionaries and then sending them out. So over the last 20 years of experience of being sent and being a part of sending others, I want to share one lesson with you that I've learned is that it's not just the sent ones are not just missionaries. Being sent doesn't just mean being sent to some faraway place. Rather, every Christian is a sent one. And every Christian community is sent together on mission with Jesus. The Latin translation for this word we find in, in verse 18 is, of sent is metere, which, from which we get the English word mission. So I've come to believe that mission or being sent is inseparable from our identity and purpose as the people of God. You see, the Bible tells a story of God on a mission, of God's long-term purpose to reconcile a people to himself from every tongue and tribe and nation and to restore them to the flourishing of life under, the, under his loving rule and to restore even all creation. And to accomplish his mission, he calls the people into existence. Early on in the story, he called Abraham and his family and his descendants who became the people of Israel. And they were to be a light to the nations. 
Israel's calling, Israel's identity was inseparable from the mission that God had called them into existence for. It was missional by nature. And the story of God's working in and through Israel comes to its climax in the life and death and resurrection of Israel's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus carried forward and fulfilled the mission that God had begun through Israel so that by his death and resurrection, the saving power of God is now available to everyone, not on the basis of race or ethnicity, but on the basis of faith alone and the grace of God alone. Then Jesus called and commissioned his followers to go out into all the world and announce this good news, announce his victory over sin and over Satan and over death. And as people responded to the message, they gathered together as communities. These communities were called churches. They were God's new covenant people. And the church's membership was not limited to ethnic Jews or converts to Judaism. Rather, the Gentiles were welcome into the family of God solely on the basis of faith. This was radical. As the early church was devoted to Jesus and empowered by his spirit, they began carrying forward the mission of Jesus to the ends of the earth. The role that the people of God play in the story of God gives us our missional identity. Thus, the church is missional by its very nature. The whole of its mission springs from this identity. Jesus is a king on a mission. To follow this king, this Jesus, means that you are drawn in to his mission. There is no other way. And you are given an honored and privileged and powerful and significant role in his mission. Every Christian is. To get a better handle on this, I think it could be helpful for us to look at how the apostles in the early church understood their being sent by Jesus. Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Just before Jesus ascended to the Father, he commissioned his disciples saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. He said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. So as you follow the story in the book of Acts, what you will find is that as the, the good news of Jesus spread throughout the Roman Empire, mostly along relational lines, by word of mouth. And those who believed, they gathered together in someone's home that was large enough to accommodate uh, a gathering. They usually met on Sunday evenings, which was called the Lord's Day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Some church networks, like the one in Antioch, would commission and send out missionaries like Paul and Barnabas to go and take the good news of Jesus to places it had not gone yet. And Paul and his co-workers would follow the exact same pattern. They would proclaim the good news of Jesus. They would announce his victory over sin and evil and death. And they would gather all who repent and believe into little churches. These little churches were like kingdom outposts, outposts of God's kingdom, where the power of sin in their life was increasingly giving way to the power and, uh, and love of Jesus. I want to emphasize this morning three aspects of being sent. The first one is this. 
being sent into the world meant that they were commissioned and empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel to all, from their neighbor to the nations, from their local context to the ends of the earth. And to, get a help, to help us get a feel for how this would have played out, imagine with me, take a little historical journey with me, and imagine that you were someone living in the city of Laodicea. It's right down the road from the city of Colossae to whom Paul wrote a letter to the church and the church there. Imagine it's the first century, around 55 AD. Imagine that you are a Roman official and of some reputation in the city. And through your business dealings, you got to know a woman named Nympha. And after a while, you discover that she's a Christian and Christians meet in her home. And one day she invites you to attend one of their gatherings. And so you don't want to give offense. And so you feel obliged to, to go. And so on the next Lord's Day, you show up at the appropriate time. And when you enter the house, you find that there are 20 or 25 people gathered there. Among them were some of her slaves and some of their children. After a few minutes, another merchant family arrives. And among them were some artisans some stonemasons, some silversmiths in the city. You notice that there's some Jews there also, which you thought was odd because Jews and Gentiles don't normally hang out together. And you learn that the Jews had, had heard about Jesus from a man named Epaphras who was there in the synagogue recently and had proclaimed Jesus. And they brought with them a couple of their Jewish friends who weren't yet sure what they thought about Jesus, but they liked the free food, so they came. And then there was a visitor, a man named Archippus from Colossae, who had brought a letter and he said, Paul had written us this letter and he instructed us to go and read this letter to you guys in Laodicea. So Archippus was visiting. And then surprisingly, you notice also that there were a couple of orphans in the room. They had been adopted off the street by one of the stonemasons and his wife. After a while of conversation, uh, Nympha calls everyone to sit down at table. And then shockingly, she and her husband begin to serve food and set it on the table before them. You start to freak out at that moment because as a high-ranking Roman official, never in your life have you sat at the same table as a slave. It was unthinkable. And never in your life have you ever sat at the same table with an orphan, a street child. And never before in your whole life have you ever seen the master of the house serving while his own slaves and their children are seated at table. You don't know what to think of this. At the end of the meal, they break bread and they remember Jesus's death and they take the cup remembering his blood shed for them and they sing a few songs of praise to him. Afterwards, Archippus, the visitor from Colossae, he reads a portion of the letter. He unrolls the scroll and reads it. He said that, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, everything earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, malice, wrath, slander, 
and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another any longer, seeing that you've put off the old self and all its practices as you put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all, and we are one in him. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one of you has a complaint against one another, forgive, just as God has forgiven you in Christ. Above all these, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke, provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, for as as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality with God. Therefore, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. As you're sitting there listening, and the, as the believers start to discuss how to live out Paul's instructions in their everyday life. His teachings seem affirming of some of the ways you grew up living, but in other ways, offensive. You find it both attractive and offensive at the same time. Towards the end of the meeting, they, they take a tally of the needs among their members. The stonemasons are finding it hard to find work that's not related to the temple cult. The family with the two adopted children are especially hard-pressed for money. So Nympha, being the patron that she is, offers to help. One of the servants is absent because he's sick, so they stop and pray. Another mentions that his uncle is interested in knowing more about Jesus and asks, can I invite him? And they all agree, of course you can. One of the Jewish brothers then closes in prayer. As some people linger on after the prayer you thank Nympha for her hospitality and you make your way to the door. And as you go back through the dark alleys to your home, you can't deny that some of what you heard was attractive, but some of it was downright offensive to your sensibilities. You wonder, maybe I'll go one more time. What can it hurt? I share this historical fiction bit with you to, just to explain that this is how it happened in the early church. This is how they grew. It was in a highly relational context. Believers told those in their networks about Jesus and then invited them to come and follow Jesus with me and with us. And when a congregation grew beyond the, the meeting capacity of the home, they would start meeting in two homes and thus it multiplied. If there was a basic strategy of the early church in being sent, it was this. By proclaiming the gospel along relational lines, they establish and multiply communities of disciples throughout the world. And they did it together as a team. There were no lone evangelists. 
Their evangelistic effort was profoundly communal. Each person exercising their own gifts to make it happen. No one person could do it all. They were sent together as a body, working in concert with one another. Secondly, being sent into the world meant that these churches were learning together how to bring every aspect of life under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus prayed, I have given them your word. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. These believers saw themselves as sanctified by God, set apart from the world and set apart to Jesus Christ and his purposes. They were defined and shaped by the word of God, which they recognized both in the Old Testament and in the apostolic teachings. Truth for them was not of their own making. They were ones who accepted your word, O Lord, is truth. This meant that they became a radically countercultural community and their distinctiveness shone brightly against the backdrop of first century Greco-Roman world. Because in this cultural context, uh, they had to wrestle with how the truth of God's word would play out in their lives. The lordship of Jesus brought, brought both comfort and confrontation. Since only a tiny fraction of the population of the empire were of noble birth, many were attracted to this upside-down nature of God's kingdom, where the highborn and the lowborn are one in Christ, but all honored children of God Most High. And as believers elevated their unity in Christ above every other social dividing line, Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, noble and peasant, slave and free, male and female, they experienced the joy of belonging to the family of God. They didn't just call one another brother and sister. They lived like it. They gave their brothers and sisters in Christ the same degree of loyalty and support that they would with their own kin. And when and where this was happening, Jesus' prayer was being answered, that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe. And it was compelling to outsiders. Marriage was so highly honored that not only women, but also men were expected to maintain fidelity in marriage and to treat their wives with dignity and kindness. The status of women was greatly elevated through the church. Children were celebrated as a blessing and not a burden. God's word unmasked for Christians that unthinkable horror of abortion and infanticide, which was common in the empire. The children that were left out to exposure by the Greeks and Romans were picked up and adopted by Christian families. Living in this way made their life like a city on a hill that could not be hidden. One scholar says this, the most characteristic element of the mission in the early church in the first three centuries was the attractive power of the local congregation. Thirdly, being sent into the world meant that Christians would suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. As they learned to bow the knee to Jesus, they found freedom and joy, but it also brought them into sharp contrast with the powers that be. They could not participate in the market economy of idol worship. They could not support the bloody gladiatorial games. They had to pull away from the theater and entertainment industries because of the rampant immorality. 
They overturned the long-standing honor codes that were founded on pride and self-advancement. True honor for Christians, they realized, consisted in learning to steward one's influence and resources for the benefit of those on the margins. Thus, they learned to welcome the social outcast, stand up for the oppressed, and condemn publicly hypocrisy. During disasters and pandemics, instead of fleeing like the rest, they risked their lives to care for the sick and dying, not only for their own, but also for those outside the church, poor and rich alike. As their righteous conduct brought into sharp relief the shameful ways of the culture around them, many outsiders were offended. Their ultimate allegiance to King Jesus opened them up to the charge of treason and subversion of the state. As the, the cult of emperor worship took root in the cities throughout the empire, Christians were marginalized, oppressed, persecuted, and some were martyred. This is why Jesus prayed on the night of his betrayal. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Alongside their words and their deeds, their sufferings bore witness to the truth of Jesus. As the father sent me, Jesus prayed, the Father's path for Jesus led to the cross. His path for them led there too. These early Christians were not perfect, of course. They struggled just as we do. You can read 1 Corinthians and see how greatly they struggled to live out life under the reign of Jesus. But God preserved them in their faith and witness, just as he will do for us. Jesus' strategy for reconciling the nations to himself and restoring them to the joy of life under his rule has not changed. It is still by establishing and multiplying communities of disciples who are devoted to Jesus, who live like this, who embody and proclaim the good news of King Jesus. This is how the early church was sent. This is how we are sent. This is why at Grace Auburn, we state our purpose this way. Grace Auburn exists for the city and the campus, and the nations to know and love Jesus by establishing authentic gospel communities. So for us, I want to emphasize the same three aspects of being sent. First of all, it means, it means that each one of us is commissioned and empowered to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Jesus prayed, I don't ask for these only, but the, for those who will believe in me through their word. He says to us, go and make disciples. He says to us, you will be my witnesses. He says to us, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. These words of Jesus are for us too. And just like with the early church and the church in every age, the most fruitful gospel witness comes in the context of personal relationships. So I would venture to say that each one of you here knows at least a few people who don't know and love Jesus. There are a few people at your work or in your class or the person who cuts your hair or your dentist or the barista behind the counter of your favorite coffee shop. There are people in your life that God has put there by design so that as they are reaching out in the darkness of life, trying to grab a hold of some truth, they can reach out and touch you. Now, many of you may already do this, but what if you just made a list 
of people in your life who don't know Jesus. And you begin to pray for a few of them each day. Just a simple thing. Could you start that? If you're not already. And what if you start to ask God, God, give me an opportunity to speak of you with them. Give me an opportunity to learn more about their story and their spiritual journey and where they're coming from. Give me an opportunity to share about my spiritual journey and give me an opportunity to share about what difference Jesus makes in my life. Give me an opportunity to share some resource with them, some video, some article, some sermon, some book, something. Give me an opportunity to invite them to a community group or invite them to a worship gathering. If you're not sure where to start with that or what to do or how to do that, if that makes you kind of freak out nervous, just come and talk to us. Uh, pastors and teachers are not the ones called to do the work of the ministry. We're called to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Let someone know, someone who's a little bit further down the road in you in this area. There's no shame in that. It's a first step to a, a life of uh, joy and experiencing God using you to bring people to Christ. Our gospel proclamation begins with our neighbors, but it's on its way to all nations. We exist to see the gospel proclaimed and churches established throughout the world. So while most of us will not be sent to faraway places, we hope and pray that there will be some, maybe some of you sitting right here in this room now, some of you will be sent to those faraway places where Jesus is not known. Secondly, being sent for us means being an integral member of an authentic gospel community that's learning together how to follow Jesus in all of life. Jesus prayed that they would be one even as we are one. And he also prayed, I have given them your word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is in the context of rich community that we experience, we experience the transforming power of the gospel and the healing in our lives that results. Now, Americans tend to pride themselves on being independent, autonomous, self-sufficient, but this is completely at odds with God's uh, vision for being human. To be human, to be truly human, is to be interdependent, to be in mutual relationships of reciprocity and mutual love and support. We were meant for rich and rugged relationships, going deep with others as we follow Jesus together. Now, I'll warn you, living this way isn't always rosy. It's usually messy, and sometimes it's painful. But how will you know if you are truly patient unless you are confronted with people who try your patience? How will you know if you are truly kind like Jesus is kind unless you are in relationships with people that bring you to the edge of your human kindness? How will you bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ unless you are close enough with others so that their burdens become your burdens or even that sometimes they themselves become burdensome to you? This can be so challenging but it's so worth it. There's no other way to live out the Christian life in line with the gospel. Through one another, we experience the encouragement and the affirmation of the Lord and the specifics of our unique station and season in life. By ourselves, we cannot possibly do all that God commands the church to do. We're not meant to. We are simply members 
of a much larger body. Not everyone can adopt orphans, but some of us can. And the rest of us could celebrate that and encourage them and support them and pray for them. Not everyone can own a business and use the influence that that provides to bring blessing to their employees, blessing to their vendors, blessing to their um, clients, even blessing to their competitors. Not everyone can do that, but some of us can. And the rest of us can encourage them and admonish them and strengthen them as they fulfill that calling. We don't all have the same gifts. Not all of us have the gift of communication. Others have the gifts of service, some of prayer, some of mercy. But every gift is given by God so that the church can be built up and the gospel can be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. So whether you're a student or a graduate or a professional or a stay-at-home mom or a single parent just struggling to stay afloat, whether you're a laborer or an executive, whether you're old or young, or even for the children that are in the room, each one of us has an honored role to play in God's mission that's uniquely designed by God for you in this season of life. For the mom with a newborn, for example, just nursing and changing diapers is probably the extent of what their role in God's mission is right now. The rest of us are called to support them and pray for them, encourage them, see if we can bring them a meal. Each person and each role for each season is significant and honored in God's sight. And it is in the context of deep Christian community that we discover what our role is and just how we can faithfully fulfill it. Also, by standing together as one, we will not be so easily swept away by the idolatrous forces of our culture. Whereas the world around us bows before the idols of materialism and consumerism, we learn to be content with what we have and to live with radical generosity. Whereas in the world around us, people sacrifice their marriage, their children, even their own health at the altar of career advancement. We, however, learn to honor our vows and to be loyal to our core relationships. Whereas in this hypersexualized world around us, immorality is exalted, yet we learn to live with honor and integrity, both in singleness and in marriage. Whereas in the world around us, dignified public discourse is no more, it seems. We learn, however, to let our manner of speech be with grace and wisdom, seasoned with salt. Whereas in the world around us, we find division. We learn to love those who are not like us. Whereas in the world, we find oppression and injustice. We learn to steward our influences for the sake of those on the margins. Whereas in the world, we find substance abuse and addictions of all sorts that are strangling the life out of its victims. We learn to help one another find freedom and victory in Jesus. These are just a few ways that as we do this together, we become an attractive, compelling community to the world around us, like a city on a hill, an outpost of God's kingdom, attracting others to its light and life. But lastly, being sent means that we will also suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. Because if we are faithful to proclaim his truth in this context that denies the, the existence of truth, and if we are faithful to bring our lives in line with the gospel, we will be offensive in this world. It will bring us into conflict with the idolatrous powers that be. We don't have to tax our imaginations very much to see the points of conflict. 
marriage, family, sexuality and gender, the life of the unborn, injustice, nationalism, predatory practices against the poor. All of these are just just a few of the ways that we will be brought into sharp conflict with the idolatry in our culture. Now, the points of attraction and offensiveness are different for every time and place, and they change as the culture changes. But this is how it always has been. The gospel brings both synthesis and antithesis to the culture around us. But it is in the context of authentic gospel community that we find the comfort and the care to press on in faithfulness to King Jesus. Jesus said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Alongside of our words and our deeds, our sufferings also will bear witness to the truth of Jesus. As the Father sent me, so I send you. The Father's path for Jesus led straight to the cross. The Father's path for us will lead there too. So Grace Auburn Church, we are sent ones, all of us, every one of us. And we are sent as one, as one body, one unified body to draw the city and the campus and the nations to Jesus. And we do this by establishing authentic gospel communities throughout the city where we love one another and we spur each other on in our obedience to Christ. This will be both offensive and attractive to the world around us, which means that we will suffer. But in our suffering, we will suffer together as one. Let's pray. We're so glad you listened to this week's sermon. There is so much going on in the life of our church with community groups beginning and our collective yes to serve and carry out the mission of leading people to know and love Jesus. Our heart is that you would find a place to belong here. For more information about ways that you can partner with us and our mission, you can visit our website at graceauburn.church. Thank you.